get into the word today, I, th- I think I, I, well, you need a couple of explanations. So let me start, first of all, with the sandals, right? I'm wearing sandals today. And, and so, so you said, why is he wearing sandals? You know, I'm, I'm not trying to be like Moses. We're going to finish Exodus today, right? You know, and Je- I think Jesus taught in sandals, so I feel comfortable with that kind of stuff. But really, I have a raging case of poison ivy on my legs. So if I wear socks... You know, I've just started to tame it a little bit. If I wear socks, I'm going to suffer all afternoon, so forget it. I'm in sandals this morning. So uh, that's the last time I put in a mailbox for my sister. You know, that's it. The other thing is we have this big blue board out in the middle of our lobby, right? And so you're standing there looking at it and say, what is that, right? And it's got these numbers on top, 111, right? And we're going to do an emphasis in the month of September called 111. And what we'd like for you to do is identify one person, to pray for for one month and invite them to a special service, our homecoming, back to church Sunday at the end of September, right? That when you look at it biblically and every other, other way around, that the two most powerful things we can do to influence people's movement towards the kingdom is to pray for them and personally invite them to get more connected with God. And that's what we're inviting you to do. Now, this is something we've done in the past, and we've had great success with it and that kind of stuff. And, and some of you are here because somebody invited you to come be a part of a service. And so, um, so what we've done is we, we put the board up, and there are name tags out there. And we'd love for you just to put the name down of the person that you're going to pray for. And when we're here through the course of the week, we will join you in praying for them. We, you don't have to put down their last name. We don't have to know who's the one praying for them. Just put their name on it and put it on the board, and, and we'll be praying for them throughout the journey. And um, just, just so kind of you know where we're going to go. So after today, we're going to jump into a quick three-week series about prayer, right? We're going to be praying for people specifically. It's going to be an emphasis we're doing. And we're going we're gonna to do a little series entitled um, Prayer, Learning to Talk to God Like Jesus. And so for the next three weeks, we're just going to look at some of the prayers of Jesus and what we can learn from them about how we should talk to God, because that's what prayer is, right? Talking to God. Then when we get down to our homecoming Sunday on the 30th of September, right, we're going we're gonna to start a quick series on how to know God's will. I think one of the, the, the big questions a lot of people in our community think about the people that you work with, the, your friends and family, etc. So how do I really know what it means to live in God's will, to walk with God? What, is it, what does it mean? That how do I make decisions according to God? So we're going to do a series on, on um, God's will. We're going to do that for four weeks. Of course, the core of God's will for us is for us to know Jesus. So when we get done with that four-week series, we're going to jump into um, a study of the Gospel of Mark, and we're just going to learn about Jesus. For a number of weeks. And, um, and I like Mark because his favorite word is immediately. He's a guy of action, right? You know, so we're just going to move right along, right through the book of, of Mark. And so you really kind of know where we're going from now to almost next Easter, right? But we want to challenge you today to start praying for the person that you're going to invite to come to that thir- service on the 30th, right? And so you'll hear a little bit more about that as we go through. And if, as the person comes to your mind, write it on a name tag, stick it on the board, and we'll get a chance to, to pray over that and, and throughout the course of the weeks. And, and um, in case you think that board looks familiar, it is what we had up here for VBS, but we've just recycled it and used it over again, all right? So Paul Rulo has done a great job. Hey, would you grab a Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 40 with me? Exodus chapter 40. If you're using one of our Bibles that's underneath your seat, because you didn't bring one with you, you'll find our text today on page 82, page 82. 
For those of you who brought your own Bibles, you should know where Exodus is by now. But if you happen to be just visiting and kind of jumping in with us, uh, we are um, in Exodus is the second book in the Bible. And it's part two of a five-part story that we've been looking at since just after Easter. So this is like our 19th message in the book of Exodus. And, and I have a little kind of like a twister for you, a little teaser, is that, is that when is an end not an end? And that's when you come to the end of the book of Exodus. It, it, it seems like it's an end because you hit the period, you turn the page, there's a different number at the top of the page, a different uh, uh, a title at the top of the page. It's going to be the book of Leviticus. And you think, all right, you know, so we've ended. We really haven't. You just can, the very first words of the book of Leviticus are, are, and God summoned Moses into the tabernacle. And today we're going to study when God filled the tabernacle with his glory. A word, and, a, and the uh, rabbis came to refer to that as the, sh- the Shekinah, right? The Shekinah of God, the glory of God. And so we're going to be looking at, at that throughout our journey today. And, you know, um, we... You know, it's interesting. Why does it stop here? You know, why doesn't it continue on to Leviticus or whatever? So probably from a practical reason, as Moses is writing, as God inspires, he comes to the end of his scroll, right? They can only make the scroll so long, right? So he's written 40 chapters. He kind of gets to the end of it. And it's like, all right, got to start a new book. So he rolls it back up and he starts. And the next one they end up calling Leviticus, right? But this is also a transition point, right? The, the book of Exodus actually spans a period of time of 480 years, right? Now, granted, 400 of those years take place in chapter 1. When, the peop- where, when Egypt goes from a place where, where, the, where the Israelites could flee to find safety and to find provision from the famine, it goes to be a place of slavery, where you know, they've grown from just being a clan to being a true people group, and they've become a threat to the Egyptians from the inside out, so they are oppressing them and even engaging in male infanticide. And we see all of that happening in chapter 1, but that takes place over 400 years, right? That's about the the age that the Western world has been in America, right, in North America, about 400 years, a long time. And they've grown into a big people group. The second 80 years take all place in chapter 2. Everything from chapter 2 forward covers a year span of time, right? You know, you have, the, you have the, the, the encounter of Moses, you know, with the Israelites and, and then he, uh, with God on the, on, uh, at the burning bush, and then he goes back and he has the inter- interactions with Pharaoh. Eventually, God releases the people and brings them out from slavery. You know, it's one of these contests where you have the God of Israel who is the true God, the sovereign God, up against the God of of Egypt, who is the Pharaoh, who is really not a God. He's like a little God. And they're having a contest, and it's a 10 to 0 mercy rule. It's over after 10, right? You know, I mean, just one sign after another brings Egypt to its knees, and the people are led out by Moses. From the day they left to the point where we arrive at today, it's been a year, 12 months. From the night they packed up all their stuff, asked their Egyptian neighbors for all their jewelry and gold, and marched out of, of, the, of the Egypt. At, they were slaves, and they marched out to freedom to become the people of God, having plundered, if you will, the nation. As they walk out, one year later, they find themselves 
at Mount Sinai, and God is ready to fulfill a promise to them that he has made not only to them, but before them, to their, to their fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that he says, I am going to be a God who dwells in your midst. And in chapter 40, we see that promise come true. So there's a milestone place where God is in the process of delivering them. The story's not over. It's not going to get over until they get to the promised land. But in this particular place, God is fulfilling a huge part of his promise to them, saying, you're going to be my people, and I am going to dwell in your midst. So grab your Bibles, and let's look at chapter 40. And I'm going to read all of this to you. I'm going to go back and make a few observations, and then, and then I really want to kind of stress my point today, I think, to the message that really speaks to us. So again, the people have been out of Egypt now for a year. They've been actually at Mount Sinai for over 10 months at this point in time. It says, and the Lord spoke to Moses, you are to set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting on the first day of the first month. You notice that? The first day of the first month. What would we call that here? That'd be New Year's Day, right? <laughs> so he says, on your New Year's Day, you start a new year. This is what I want you to do. I want you to set up the covenant, set up the tabernacle that I have led you to build. Put the ark of the testimony there and screen off the ark with the veil. Testimonies are references to the, um, to the tablets that had the Ten Commandments on them that put inside the ark, right? Then bring the table and lay out its arrangements. Also bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. Place the gold altar for incense in front of the ark of the testimony and put up the screen for the entrance to the tabernacle. Position the altar of burnt offering in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Assemble the surrounding courtyard and hang the screen from the grate before the gate of the courtyard. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it consecrated it along with all of its furnishings so it'll be holy. Anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils. Consecrate the altar so that it can be especially holy. Anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then bring Aaron and his sons, known as the Levites, right? Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Clothe Aaron with the holy garments. Anoint him and consecrate him so that he can serve me as a priest. Have his sons come forward and clothe them in tunics. Anoint them just as you anointed their father so that they may also serve me as priests. Their anointing will serve to inaugurate a permanent priesthood for them throughout their generations. And Moses did everything just as the Lord had commanded him. The tabernacle was set up in the first month of the second year on the first day of the month. And Moses set up, the ta- set up the tabernacle. He laid his bases, positioned his plank, inserted his crossbars, and set up his posts. Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle. And he put the covering of the tent on top of it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And Moses took the testimony and placed it in the ark and attached the poles to the ark. He set the mercy seat on top of the ark. He brought the ark into the tabernacle, put up the veil for the screen, and screened off the ark of the testimony just as the Lord had commanded him. He basically made the Holy of Holies inside of the tabernacle, right? Moses plays the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the gathering of the tabernacle outside the veil. 
He arranged the bread on it before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded him. He also put the lampstand in the tent of meeting outside the table. And so now your eyes are starting to say, well, this seems to be like a real, you know, what does all this mean? We're going to get there in just a minute. He says, right, he said, you know, on the south side of the tabernacle, set up the lamps before the Lord, just as the Lord had commanded him. Moses also installed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the veil. And he burned fragrant incense on it, just as the Lord had commanded him. He put up the screen at the entrance to the tabernacle. Then he placed the altar of burnt offering at the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered the burnt offering and the grain offering on it, just as the Lord had commanded him. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put the water in it for washing. Moses, Aaron, and his sons washed their feet, their hands and feet from it. They washed whenever they came to the tent of meeting and approached the altar just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So next, Moses set up the surrounding courtyard of the ta- for the tabernacle and the altar and hung a screen for the gate of the courtyard. So Moses finished the work and the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the, the, the Shekinah, the Shekinah of God, right? The, the glory of God cloud encapsulated in this cloud covers the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And God took possession of it as the new owner, just like when, you know, if somebody builds a home for you, right, you know, or, or you buy a car from a car dealer, you don't want them keeping a copy of the key, right? So God said, this is my house now, so you only come in when I invite you. So it says in verse 35, it says, Moses went as, was unable to enter the tent of meeting because a cloud rested on it. It was God's. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacles. And the Israelites set out whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle throughout all the stages of their journey. If the cloud was not taken up from it, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day. And there was a fire inside the cloud by night, visible to the entire house of Israel throughout all the stages of their journey. Now, all right. Now, let's try to make that look like something to you. So we're going to pick up a a, a picture. This is what the tabernacle looked like, all right, when it was all done. This is, so in chapters 20, there's four or five chapters of talking about building this thing. Latter part of chapter 20 and in chapters 30, there's talked about how they built it and who built it, right? And here they put it all together. So just a couple things. This This is the size of an American football field. So this gives you a sense to scale of how big this was. Pretty big area, right? And so back in here is where the Ark of the Covenant went. You know, they make Indiana Jones movies about that, right? You know, the, the Ark of the Covenant. This, was, this, this is where the Ten Commandments were put in, right? And the cover was put on, and there was like a mercy seat on top of it. The imagery is that God's glory in some way sat on top of it. And it was shielded off from everywhere else by this curtain. And this is true when they build the temple, right? And, and only the the priests were able to go in there when the tabernacle was set up. The, the high priest was only going there one day a year. It was that sacred of a spot. Outside of that, you have this area here where you have the... All right. We're doing that. There we go. You have the lampstand here. This thing on this side over here was the table of the showbread, right? So what they did is they actually put out cakes every morning as a reminder of the manna that God had provided to the people on a daily basis throughout their 40-year journey, right? And then right in front, there was a, um, a, a place where they burned uh, incense before God. 
And so out here was this big altar where all the offerings were given. Whether it was a thanks offering, whether it was a regular daily offering, whether it was a fellowship offering, like a celebration for a blessing that God had given, or whether it was a sin offering, something they would have done on Passover. When they'd set this up for the very first time and God's glory fills it, Passover is just a few days away. The first one that they were going to celebrate outside of Egypt. Back in here was this, was this uh, bronze basin that was filled with water where the Israelites, where the priests would cleanse themselves all the time, right? So when you look at this chapter, there are some different study lines we can take that have real value to us. I want to acknowledge them because I think they're significant, but then I'm going to set them aside because we just don't have enough time to look at all of them today. Now, there is a way and a place where the, 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 the aspects of the tabernacle have real value to our connecting with God's glory. For instance, you know, the idea of the bronze bowl, right? The need to be cleansed. It, it's a refra- it's, it's, it refers to or is symptomatic of the fact that you and I need to experience God's ongoing forgiveness for the sin that takes place in our lives. And so you hear a verse like from, from the Apostle John through his, his epistle. It says, you know, for we confess our sins and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and what? And cleanse us, right? From all unrighteousness. And being close to God requires a heart that is ready to confess where we come up short of what God God expects of us, right? The showbread, the, the table inside with the showbread, God calls upon us to remember, right? This is really, a, in the New Testament, we see this most clearly in what we call the Lord's Supper, right? Or communion. It's the Lord's table. It's a place where God calls us to remember what he has provided for us. And so there's a need for us to remember. One of the biggest struggles the Israelites have had in the book and in the book of um, Exodus is they keep, they, they have a micro memory, right? They can remember what God did five minutes ago and they know what they need for him to do in the next five minutes, but they forget everything else that God has done. And so over and over again, it says, I, you know, I know God let us out and he did all the stuff in Egypt, but I'm thirsty, right? You know, and he hasn't showed up and done his job yet today. And they had this micro memory all the time. And he said, you know, you need to remember, right? You got the, the, the lampstand. And this thing is like six feet tall. At the top of each one of those things is a bowl big enough to hold oil where it would burn for, over, for 24 hours. And it's a symbol of the fact that God is our guiding light. But it's also a symbol of the fact that we are called to be the light of the world, right? And so you can keep making those applications. Same with the, the, the altar. You know, it's, it's a reminder that we don't need to make a sin offering anymore. Because Jesus has already done that. The book of Hebrews tells us in the seventh chapter, right? In, in verse 27, it says, you know, he gave himself once for all when he, you know, he, he settled it once for all when he offered up himself. There's no more need for that kind of offering, but there is a need for us to have a spirit of offering. And that's why Paul calls upon us. He says, you know, therefore, when he talks about all that God has done to redeem us, he says, that's why, brothers, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, right? And so there's elements to all of that, right? So I'm just going to take that. I'm going to set that aside, right? And, and the second aspect of this whole thing that is a significant part of the storyline that I just want to identify and then set aside is the idea that God fulfills his promises. You know, back in Exodus chapter 29, 
literally going all the way back to the beginning of the book of Exodus, the spirit of what God has been saying to the patriarchs all the way since Genesis 1, right, is God says, I'm going to be in your midst. I am a God who's with you. You messed it up in the garden, right, when I came to walk with you and and you had rebelled against me, but I'm not going to let that be the final word. And my promise is that we're going to get to a place in my redemptive activity where I can dwell among you as your God and you as my people. And in Exodus chapter 40, God keeps his promise. God keeps his promise. And, and it, 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 you know, there, there is a need for you and I to remember that God keeps his promises. Every single one of us is going to go through moments in our journey where we're going to have such white water of change going on in our lives, things that seem to be outside of control, things that are not pleasant in our lives, and we're going to start doubting the promises of God. We need to remember that God fulfills his promises. And his biggest promise to us is that he's going to be with us throughout to the end of the age, and then we're going to be with him for eternity, right? And God is a promise keeper. He makes and he fulfills his promises. And that just comes out huge in Exodus chapter 40. I'm going to take that and set that aside, right? Because what I really want to talk to you about today is a big picture, right? And, and if we have enough time at the end, I'd even like to take a few questions if you have any from the, your readings of the book of Exodus this year. But, but I want to back up and I want to look at the big picture. This book covers a period that's, that's pretty close to 500 years, 480 years, right? It's a, it's a massive journey that they've gone on, right? And when you get to this point in time, you see that God has stepped in and he's led them out from slavery. So just a little recount, right? Because I want us to get the big picture, right? When the promised land where Jacob was living with 11 of his 12 sons and their families was just so destitute from famine. They were getting food back and forth from Egypt. And it was being provided by the 12th brother, who they thought was all dead, and his name was Joseph. And then God used that as a way to deliver the, the, the family, the, the clan of Israel, and bring it to Egypt, where he used it as an incubator to grow them up. And they went from being a group of a clan of 70 to being basically a full-fledged people group. Our best estimates is that they were well over a million people at this point in time. And so they were a nation inside of a nation. And God was, and after 400 years, God was ready to work and he prepared a man by the name of Moses over an 80 year period to be his instrument that he was going to use to lead the people out. And God was going to redeem them by the, by the strength of his own arms. That they weren't going to have anything to do with it. They were hopelessly and helplessly enslaved. Life was brutal for them. They, they, had to, you know, they, they were enslaved. They had to make bricks, there, you know, et cetera. They, they were totally at the mercy of the people of Egypt, of the leader of Egypt. And so much so that they were routinely killing off the sons so that they would not become any stronger militarily inside of their own nation. I mean, it was a brutal place to be. And they were hopelessly and helplessly enslaved in Egypt until God shows up. And when they cross the Red Sea and God brings the, the water back on top of the Egyptian army, slavery's in their rearview mirror. 
And all that's ahead of them now is the, is the relationship they're going to step into with God. They've been redeemed. It was all God. There's no going back, right? Slavery is behind them. The, war, the, the sea is refilled. There's no going back. They are freed, just like we are freed from our sin in Jesus Christ. It's, there's no going, we, we are, we're, now we're moving forward into a relationship. And guess what they discovered along the way? That they couldn't make that journey without God. Huge insight, right? We, you know, we don't have water. We don't have food. We don't have meat. You know, we, 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 need, we need God here with us. The problem was that they got, when they got to Mount Sinai is they figured out this is a God that we cannot control. So he may not show up when we need him to show up. Moses is up on the mountaintop having this conversation with God. Well, they don't know if he's died. We don't know, they don't know if God's ever going to speak to them again. They don't know if God's ever going to provide for them again. So they, they say, you know what? We need a God that we can depend on. So they make their own. The golden calf in Exodus chapter 32. Right? They had the right desire. We want to have God in our midst. That's what I need. That's what you need, Right? We need God in our midst. Their solution to the problem was not the way God wanted to achieve it. It's what made them feel comfortable. We, we've got this God, you know, he, we know he's powerful. He can do great things, that kind of stuff. But we'd much rather make a God that we can control. We can define it. We make sure we can know that it sees us and hears us because we can stand in this presence and et cetera. So, so they, they abandon they disobey what God has asked them to do as a part of their covenant relationship, and they build a God that they think they can rely on. And that's what they do in the golden calf. All because of a right desire to have God in their midst. But they wanted to have God in their midst on their terms. Let me put it this way. They wanted to have a God who would serve them rather than to follow a God that they needed to serve. Now, let that sink in for a minute, right? They wanted to have a God who would serve them. This is a God who would show up in my life, fix my problems, meet my needs, give me my blessings, and et cetera. I want to have a God who would serve me. They didn't really want. They struggled with. It was too much work. It was too uncertain if we have to keep kind of following after this God who expects us to serve him. Because what if, what if we blow it? So let's make, it, let's make a golden calf which was the, an Egyptian symbol of a, of, a, of a strong God, right? Was this young bull kind of idea. And they make their own God. See what happens, though, in chapter 40. So there's a breaking of the covenant. We, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. There's a smashing of the, of the two stones that had the Ten Commandments on them. And, and the covenant is over. God in his grace, and because of Moses' intercession... Because there's a need for an intercessor for redemption to actually be complete. That role is going to be played by Jesus, right? So he, he, he intercedes, and God chooses to forgive, and the covenant is restored. There's fresh tablets to be put into the ark. And look what happens when you get to chapter 40. What they wanted, what they know they needed, actually happens. God shows up, and he's in their midst. The tabernacle is set up. They're all encamped around it. And God's glory fills the tabernacle. And God is dwelling among them. How did that happen? There's a phrase in chapter 40 
that occurs seven times. Right? It occurs seven times. And it's the phrase, just as the Lord had commanded him. Just as the Lord had commanded him. Just as the Lord had commanded him. Just as the Lord had commanded them. It just, seven times it comes up, right? The key to experiencing what they know they needed, what they really wanted, what God wanted to do, the key to having all of that come into realization, let me put it this way, living out the full blessings of having a relationship with God comes not by having a God that you can control, one you know is going to serve you, but actually you experience that God who is among you because you trust and obey. You do just as he has commanded you. That the whole picture of the book of Exodus, God has unconditionally, by his own choice and in his sovereignty, brought them out of slavery. He has a desire to have a relationship with them, a covenant, a connection. We sang about being the child of God, right? God wants us to be his children. The way you and I enjoy being God's children to the max is not by trying to follow after a God that we invent who serves us, but following after our God and doing just as he has said. That's how we get a God whose presence among us brings all the fruit, all the blessing, all the joy, all the hope, all the peace, all the security. That kind of, doesn't necessarily mean God's going gonna, God's to gonna affirm everything that you like or everything that you want. There, there are going to be convictions. There's going to be actions and those kinds of things that, that aren't going to be, they're not the things that you want to hold, but it's a part of following after a God that calls us to serve him. And we experience the fullness of his blessing, of the relationship with him, by doing just as he has commanded. Redemption, all God. Experiencing the fullness of being in a relationship with God comes from our doing just as he has commanded us. What we believe, what we do, how we serve, how we live, what we think, what we say, the list just goes on and on. I know it can feel overwhelming, but I got to tell you, when it hap- what's, what, if you and I will make that the passion of our hearts, the glory of God is going to show up. And so if you wanted to really just pull this all the way out to the New Testament, the Scripture says that you and I are the walking tabernacles of God, that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if you want God's cloud with that glory filling you, the way to get it is do just as he has commanded you. That's what it takes. And so out of this, I, I really feel led as we come to the conclusion of our study to make two invitations today. One of those is from the whole book of Exodus, and the other is from our text today. I think there's one invitation to all of us is to say, is to embrace the redemption that God has provided for us all by himself. The Israelites, they sat around until God said, oh, pack up, follow me, and out they went. And when they turned around, the army was coming after them, and they had no prayer. God swallowed it in the sea. Redemption was all God's activity. Some of us sitting in this room are still trying to be good enough for God to redeem us. And God's redemption is unconditional. 
And that's why the scripture tells us that what we need to do to embrace God's redemption is simply to believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is God's son and confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is our Lord and we will be saved. You say, well, that doesn't seem fair. No kidding, because redemption is all God's activity. And my invitation to you today, the whole, the whole reason why God is laying out this redemption in Exodus is so he can do it on a spiritual level in Jesus so that you and I can experience a redemption that we don't have to earn but is given to us as a gift by a God who is head over and heels in love with us. Even though we're a lot like the, Egypt, the Israelites that he led out of, the, of, the promise, out of Egypt. And so if you've never embraced a relationship with God that comes to you strictly by God's grace, based upon what he has done in Jesus Christ, simply by believing in Jesus, my invitation for you today is to do that. Because that's what Exodus is all about. Redemption is God's activity. You and I have nothing to do with it. God sent the intercessor, his son, Jesus Christ. He accomplished it all. He made the one offer. It's all done. We have, all we have to do is accept it by God's grace and walk out of enslavement into the relationship with God that lies ahead. Here's the second invitation. It comes from our text today. And, and, and I want to try to articulate this in a way that, that is engaging and, and connecting with you. Not, you know, just, not just churchy words, but some of, you are, some of you have been walking with God for a while. You, you've been hanging around church and that kind of stuff. And sometimes you, when you're out on a walk by yourself, or you're driving in a car and there's nothing to listen to on a radio or whatever. For one minute, your cell phone is put down and you don't have any technology. You think to yourself, I'm not getting all of what God has to offer for me. I, I know I'm missing out on it. Right? It, it, there's got to be more to this if God really loves me the way he says he does. And, 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 and some of you say, I, I don't know if this faith thing is really working for me. And, and I want to suggest to you today, that's because you're trying to create your own golden calf. You're trying to have a God who's ready to serve you. And my invitation for you today is to step up to the challenge of standing at the feet of Mount Sinai where the God says, I'm ready to do all this stuff this is what you're going to do, just as I have commanded you. And my invitation to you today is stop looking for a God who's there to serve you, but make a commitment to following after a God who asks you to serve him. And you're going to get all the blessings that God longs to give to us because he's brought us out of slavery so that we can be his people and he dwells in the midst of us. Experience God's redemption Experience all that God wants to come from that redemption as we live in relationship with him by following after a God who asks us to serve him just as he has commanded us. You know what's interesting at the end of the book of Exodus? I mean, this is a high moment, right? These people are encircled around the tabernacle. They've consecrated. They've set the whole thing up. Passover is days away. And God's glory leaves the mountain, right? And it comes down and it plunks down right in the midst of them, right? And you know what? The story's not over. Because every time it raises up, out they march. And every time it sits, they stay. The story's not over. There's a future to be had. That future is called the promised land. And if we will respond to the God who's redeemed us unconditionally. We just receive it by faith and commit to following after our God 
just as he has commanded us, a God that we need to follow as we serve him, you and I will also step into the promised land that God has for us in our own journey. And, and so that's my invitation to you today. And, um, you know, I, I'm just, we're just going to bow here for a minute. We don't, we don't do this often. If you're visiting with us, you know, we're, we, we really are, want you to take your spiritual journey at your own pace. But I just want to give you a, 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 a private moment as you, as you connect with God to see if either one of those decisions is what applies to you. Because some of us have been trying to define God for ourselves for a long time so that it can be the God that we like and the God that we want to have around rather than following after the God who has us to commit, who challenges us to follow him just as he has commanded. So let's pray together. God, in these moments, we're all going to be talking to you. I'm grateful that you can hear every single one of us with an undivided attention. So God, we just give you these moments for your spirit, your presence within us, the, the glory, your glory that's among us today to speak and to convict us. What is the decision that God would call you today? Is it to really embrace the unconditional gift of redemption, of being a child of God, not based upon what you do, but based upon what God has already done for you in Jesus Christ? And will you receive that by faith? Or will you stop trying to, 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 to manage God's presence in your life, to get him to a place where you know, he's serving you, but you'll say, you know what, I'm really going to follow after him and serve him, just as he's commanded you. What is it that God would have you do today? Father, as we conclude our series in Exodus, we give you thanks for your word, for the foundation it lays for us to understand how you've redeemed us in Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, Father, there, there was a moment in their journey where the Israelites said, you know, hearing God's voice is just too much for us. Moses, you talk to him and then you tell us what he said. God, but I, I'm grateful that your voice is not overwhelming to us anymore, but it's inviting and pleading as well as authoritative and strong. God, I ask, and, and, and it's not something we can walk away from, but it always goes with us. So, Father, we've started a conversation today with you. I pray you'd finish it. Not because the tabernacle stays put, but because you go with us, because we are now your walking, living tabernacles. So, God, we invite your continued conversation in our lives. God, thanks for being who you are. Thank you that you have never, ever, ever issued a truth or a commandment or given a direction that wasn't for our best. And in that spirit today, we embrace your love as we commit to following after our God just as he has commanded us. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to conclude our service by singing. To the God who has spoken to us, a song of celebration. It's also a chance for you to worship God through your offerings. And so we're going to pass the offering plate uh, for you. And then we'll, as we break, no need to rush off. There'll be some goodies and stuff. Again, if you're one of our guests today, I'd love to have the opportunity to get a chance to meet you. That'd be really a highlight of my day. But would you stand with me as we conclude our service?
through song.